Welcome again to Exploring the Scriptures presentation on Christians and the Gospel with Dr. Ron Bartholomew. What happened? No one in authority ever prophesied, taught, or anticipated Christianity to survive. It wasn't supposed to survive. It was supposed to die. No provisions were made to purchase land, build buildings. The saints all expected that the price of Christianity was martyrdom. The only prophecy of future glory was the second coming and the restoration. The great gap. There is an absence of historical documents after the death of the apostles. The church, the, the church that eventually emerges in the second century is not the one established by Jesus and the apostles, as we have shown. At the same time, a horde of deceivers who up until then had been lurking in dark corners. As soon as they saw that there were no more apostles that were left to call them to account, came boldly forth, each claiming that he alone had the Gnosis, which the Lord had secretly imparted to the apostles after the resurrection. The church of the third century cannot be described as a monolithic entity. Institutionally, it was a network of local churches stitched together across several cultural zones by lines of communication and personal relationships. There was no head over the church. Although the senior bishop of Rome was deemed to possess an especially important spiritual role in the Mediterranean world, no structure was in place to impose upon Christians a uniform doctrine or liturgy other than the structures of mutual love and fellowship. No single creed guided converts entering the faith. The churches did not even have a unified list of canonical books, although a general consensus was emerging concerning which gospels and epistles were to be included alongside Israel scriptures. Now it's important for us to know at this point that the people who are seeing this are not Mormons. They're Christians. And they're openly admitting that the church was not unified at this time. This is not according to us, this is according to them. Accordingly, it should be no surprise that with the death of the apostles, the unifying force of the church was gone. The distances to travel, the lack of effective communication, the disappearance of a central administration, and the frailties of human nature all combined to dictate the inevitable result, the fractionalization of Christ's church. Now, we would call this the apostasy. They don't call it that, but that's what we would call it, and it's what it was. And so, the power struggles commence, with Rome, Antioch, Alexandria, and Jerusalem emerging as the power centers of the church. In other words, these are the places where the leaders were powerful enough they tried to make that the center of the church. In the years to follow, the bishops of Rome asserted their political and ecclesiastical muscle until they eventually manipulated and maneuvered their way to dominance. What's interesting about this is Rome was farthest away from the center of the church of Jerusalem, yet Jerusalem and Antioch and Alexandria lose to the more powerful Rome because of the political power. The death of the apostles did not mean that no, institu that no institutionalized church continued, but rather 
that a different church evolved, one without revelation and without priesthood authority. While there existed for a time many competing philosophies and would-be claimants to Christ's ongoing church, eventually one composite doctrine prevailed among the majority of the people who called themselves Christians. This was a political move, not a religious move. The emerging church finally achieved some unity of doctrine when Constantine, emperor of Rome, endorsed that sect of Christianity which he thought had the greatest potential benefit to the Roman Empire. In other words, his move was a political move, not a religious move. He had no religious authority. He called it the Most Holy Catholic Universal Church. And thus, an alliance between the state and church had been forged. The ongoing church was now a political religious body. It was not a religious political body, it was a political religious body. It was there for the politicians. Before the end of the fourth century, Christianity had become the official state religion of the Roman Empire. All other schismatic groups of Christians were eventually destroyed, substantially reduced in influence, or simply assimilated into the ongoing church which had the support and blessing of Constantine and his political successors. So you can see that this is not a religious organization, it's a political organization with religious purposes. The Apostolic Fathers are a group of writers thus named from the supposition that they were personally conversant with one or more of the Apostles. And so, we'll be very interested in what they had to say about this. Their writings include noted works that were not included in the scriptural canon, like the Shepherd of Hermas, or Hermas, supposed communications from an angel, including apocalyptic visions. It's actually Hermas, you said it right the first time. This work was widely circulated in the early church and was thought to be highly edifying. Few post-apostolic writings date earlier than the Didache, 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 or the teaching of the Twelve Apostles. It is a manual providing instructions for catechisms, teaching, rites of worship, and exhortations. Authors of note include Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Arrhenius, Hippolytus, Cyp Cyprian. Cyprian and Clement of Rome. They were pro proto-Orthodox and successfully wrote against the heretical Ebenian, Ebionites, Gnostics, and Marcionites. The writings of the anti-Nicene fathers demonstrate that all of the following doctrines were taught and embraced by at least some in early Christianity. Now pay close attention to this list. This list is, which should, which should be very familiar to you. Number one, the Godhead consisted of three distinct beings. Two, God and Jesus were of a corporeal nature. Three, premortal life for ordination war in heaven. Four, the fall of Adam necessary for eternal progress. Five, grace, faith, and works, all necessary for salvation. Six, 
deification. 7. Necessity of saving ordinances for the living and the dead. Do these things sound familiar to you? They should. These are all part of the Restoration, and they're all part of the original Christianity. Postmortal evangelism in the spirit world replaced by invented doctrine of purgatory. Number nine, physical resurrection into multiple heavens. Ten, marriage as one of the sacraments of the church. Eleven, damning nature of abortion and homosexuality. However, the, however, the fact that both the Catholic and Protestant traditions have also used these writings as proof texts merely indicates the absence of theological and doctrinal unity among anti-Nicene Christians. That's an important thought. These are the references for those, for those points. Now, I think you can see that prior to the uh, rays of Nicaea, um, the, 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 the doctrines that we embrace were taught by some of the Christians. In the Didache, or teaching of the Twelve Apostles, a late first or early second century forgery, which was not included in the scriptural canon, there is ample evidence of huge changes. Now, it's important to note that the Didache was not included in the scriptural canon, and so it's just problems. One, baptism by sprinkling. This is not included in the scriptural canon. Two, prayers offered for the ordinances of the sacrament and baptism had been changed and made no reference to covenants. Three, instructions to appoint for yourselves bishops and deacons. These points were all not in the scriptures, they're still not in the scriptures, and they're apostate ideas. Paul sensed what would happen to the ordinances in the future when he enjoined the saints, keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. As I delivered them to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 2. Unfortunately, the ordinances were not kept in their pristine state. Clement of Rome, A.D. 30 through 100, noted that the Corinthian saints neither walk in the ordinances of his commandments nor live according to that which becometh Christ. That's pretty serious. They don't walk in the ordinances of his commandments nor live according to that which belongeth to Christ. Astonishingly, even Pope Adrian VI in A.D. 1522 acknowledged the corruption of ordinances. We know well that for many years things deserving of abhorrence have gathered round the Holy. The Holy See. The Holy See. Sacred things have been misused, ordinances transgressed, so that in everything there has been a change for the worse. <laughs> <laughs> There's the Pope admitting the apostasy. Blessing of babies. Mark chapter 10, verse 16. Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 15. Doctrine and Covenants, section 20, verse 70. Replaced with infant baptism as a result of the heretical doctrine of original sin. Oh, that's so true. The doctrine of original sin and infant baptism negated the power of the atonement as it applied to little children. It unwittingly condemned to hell every child who was not baptized. 
It completely undermined the need for faith and repentance as prerequisites to baptism. And finally, it propagated the false doctrine that one man might be spiritually liable for the sins of another, Adam. There's some pretty awful false doctrines out there. That's what's talking the <clears throat> blessing of baby with the infant baptism. Baptism, Greek, equals immerse. By immersion was replaced with sprinkling or washing. And as a result, the ordinance lost its original meaning and symbolism, apparently for convenience sake. Baptism for the dead was also abandoned, despite scriptural precedent. See 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 21, and 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6. Just as the emblems of the sacrament symbolize the body and blood of Christ, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins was also highly symbolic of the Savior's atonement and the regeneration of fallen man, representing by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, as well as the death of the man, as well as the death of the man arising to a new life in Christ. See Romans chapter six, verses three through five. As well as the death of the man of sin arising to a new life of Christ. Consistent with this symbolism, Cyprian, third century A.D., the bishop of Carthage, bishop of Carthage, wrote. Let us then, who in baptism have both died and been buried in respect of the carnal sins of the old man, who have risen again with Christ in the heavenly regeneration, both think upon and do the things which are Christ's. Isn't that beautiful explanation of baptism? The author of the epistle of Barnabas also spoke of the necessity of being immersed. Blessed are they that set their hope on the cross and go down into the water because we go down into the water laden with sins and filth and rise up from it bearing fruit in the heart, resting our fear and our hope on Jesus in the Spirit. That is just beautiful. The covenantal understandings of ordinances were lost or de-emphasized very early, and this change made the later accommodation of Greek philosophy much easier for the 3rd and 4th century Christians. Now, that sentence says a lot. I hope that this next sentence explain what I mean. But that only exasperated the problem. As Christian thinkers turn increasingly to Greek philosophy, after the mid-2nd century, they naturally shifted from the traditional Hebrew focus on history, including the covenants made at specific times and places, as a source of truth and obligation to the Hellenistic contemplation of nature as a source of universal truth. And this shift solidified the elimination of covenants in Christian thought and practice for the centuries that would follow. Let me try to explain what I mean by that. So originally, Christianity was was come, uh, found a source in the Hebrew tradition, where people would uh, make covenants and 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 uh, receive ordinances and make covenants to follow the Savior. That was done away with and replaced with the Greek philosophy of 
nature is just universal truth. So they saw the rain fall on the trees. The trees go on the ground and uh, grow up out of the ground. And they saw that as, as the way that that uh, truth would work as well. And so you move from the Hebrew way of doing it to the Hebrew way of doing it and it lost all of its meaning. All of the original Christian ordinances were transformed into non-covenantal sacraments before the third century. Just like the trees receive rain, they don't, they don't do anything, they stand there, rain falls to the ground. That's how they saw Christianity, it just, just, it just came to you, it just fell on you. As opposed to the, the Greek way of doing it, where you, you, uh, you, the Hebrew way of doing it, where you had to make a covenant to receive the blessing. Instead of communicating new covenants, or even felty relationships, sacraments were understood to be the means by which infusions of divine grace could be transmitted to the recipient through the mediation of a priest. So instead of making a covenant in a relationship, you just stood there and received it, just like the trees received the rain. You do anything, you just stood there, and it just came. Yale professor of ecclesiastical history George P. Fisher notes, yet we have to record an early and increasing departure from the concept of faith which is presented by the Apostle Paul and the gradual incoming of a more legal spirit, a tendency to convert faith into a credence given to facts and doctrines instead of a self-surrender to God and to Christ. That is a major shift that caused huge problems for these early Christians. The recipient made no commitments, but only needed to request the sacrament. You said to receive it like a true receiver. You don't even do anything, you just receive it. This opened the door for perversions like infant baptism, for example. Through the 5th century, children brought up in Christian homes were typically baptized after the age of 12. But by the 6th century, infant baptism had become a common practice. This was followed by a confirmation performed only by a bishop. Again, I'm not quoting anyone LDS. I'm quoting people that are not LDS, what they're saying about the church. So this is their their take on not not our understars. Infant baptism was recognized as a rite in the church by Arrhenius, 140 through 202 CE, and Origen, 184 through 253 CE, who called it an apostolic custom. In direct contradiction, Tertullian, 160 to 220 CE, urged a delay of baptism. Later, Fathers did the same on the grounds that for sins committed after baptism, forgiveness is harder to obtain. Sponsors confessed the faith in the name of the child and engaged to give them Christian training. So, so the whole idea was you had baptized someone early and then the later sins were harder to repent of. This is so foreign to, to the truth. While baptism was considered essential to salvation, a virtue was believed to reside in the baptismal water itself. In addition, Christ entered into a mysterious physical union with the bread and wine through the agency of the Word or Logos. Oh boy. Literal, transubst 
Literal transubstantiation was a doctrine of much later origin, although it is a conception foreign to the New Testament. Completely. In the East, says Harnack, we possess no proof that before the time of Eusebius, there is any idea of the offering of the literal body of Christ in the Lord's Supper. In other words, the idea of transubstantiation happens later on as we become more and more fallen into the, the, the grips of the apostasy. Despite this, it was taught that the bread and wine were mystically transformed into the flesh and blood of Christ. And that such transfers, and that such and that such transformation somehow added to the spirituality of the participant. Remember, no covenants are being made, no promise being made to be good. You just receive it like a tree receives water, and it's the actual uh, blood, blood, believed to be the blood, blood and body of Christ. This doctrine seems all the more mysterious when one realizes that the church was propagating a belief in transubstantiation was the same church that was claiming Jesus had no body of flesh and blood, but was instead a spirit. How do you do that? That's pretty tough, isn't it? One might appropriately ask, how was the bread and wine converted into the, into the flesh and blood of a being who had no flesh and blood? That's a pretty good question. That's a pretty good question. How do you do that? when bread and wine are changed into the body and blood of Christ. The Bible tells us that Jesus took bread and gave it to his disciples saying, Take and eat. This is my body which is for you. And similarly with the cup filled with wine, take and drink. This is the chalice of my blood which will be poured out for you. He did not say this bread signifies my body or this wine signifies my blood. No, he said, This is my body, this is my blood. Jesus also told his disciples, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will not die, but will have eternal life. We believe this because Jesus says it. Thanks to the work of a great philosopher, theologian, St. Thomas Aquinas, we use the word transubstantiation to indicate that at the consecration, the entire substance of the bread and the entire substance of the wine is changed into the substance of the body and blood of Christ even though the appearances of bread and wine remain. Our religion never tells us to disbelieve our senses, except in this unique case of the Eucharist. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote a beautiful hymn which includes these lines. Sight, touch, and taste in thee are each deceived. The ear alone most safely is believed. I believe all the Son of God has spoken. Than truth's own word there is no truer token. We believe it because Jesus said it and his word is true. The Church does not define when precisely transubstantiation occurs, but we know that once the bread has been consecrated, it is Jesus. Once the wine has been consecrated, it is Jesus. And the priest shows the host and the chalice to the people so that they can adore him who is my Lord and my God. Wow. Hey, like that. The Fourth Lateran Council of 1215 used the word transubstantiate to express the change or transfiguration that takes place at the element level during the Eucharist. They ruled that rather than the Eucharist being Christ's actual body and blood, recipients still taste the bread and wine, but the deeper reality, the subject of the elements, are changed by the words of the priest 
to become the literal body and blood of Christ. Again, this is not according to us, it's according to them. They're, they're scholars. Seven and ten, U.S. Catholics believe bread, wine, used in communion are symbolic. This is a, a Pew Research Center poll that was done recently, uh, showing that that it's bread and wine are, are symbols that are not real, and only only thirty-one percent believe that it was actual transubstantiation, which is a good thing. Originally, the sacrament was associated with the agape or agape 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 or love feast however occasional improprieties and excesses at the sacrament table led to the discontinuance of this practice the bread and wine were contributed by the congregation and distributed by the deacons after the clergyman's prayer thus giving the rite its name eucharist in addition the bread and wine were also conveyed to those who were not able to leave their houses. This rite was practiced weekly on Sunday. The earlier view in regard to its nature gave way to the belief that it was a sacrificial offering by the Christian priest. Thus, it was that the prayers for the dead became commonly connected with it, and it began to be considered a sacrifice for them. After the sermon and prayers, those who were not members of the church were dismissed from the services. It was as early as the end of the second century when it became customary to exclude, to exclude non-members from what we would call sacrament meeting. So then we were told not to do in Doctrine Covenants. From the Latin word signifying dismissal, missa, the word mass, is derived. This resulted because of the fear of profaning holy things. This practice, of course, was contrary to the Savior's counsel to both the Nephites, 3rd Nephi, chapter 18, verses 22 through 23 and verse 30, and to us, Doctrine and Covenants, section 46, verses 3 through 5. I need to point out to you that George Fisher is not a Mormon. He's a, he's a, a member of the Yale faculty. Changing ordinances of baptism and the sacrament from the liturgical means of making covenants to the bestowal of grace by a priest was one of the things the reformers sought to correct. They should have. Zwingli and Bullinger recognized that the covenant was an important step for each Christian, and like Nephi and Alma, saw baptism as an external sign or witness of an internal of an internal covenant that one makes with God when one repents by promising to obey his commandments henceforth. Of all the Reformation thinkers, Bollinger's views were the most advanced in this respect. His treatment of the covenant foreshadowed the thoroughly covenantal approach to the ordinances of salvation that would be established in the Restoration through Joseph Smith. Very, very interesting. So the reformers sought to reform the sacraments and they came back to be a covenant thing. In Christ's original church, there was a doctrine and ordinance known as the doctrine of laying on of hands, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 2. 
This doctrine included at least three ordinances that were performed by the laying on of hands. First, confirmation, the giving of the gift of the Holy Ghost. See Acts chapter 8, verse 17. Second, priesthood ordinations and settings apart of those in various callings of the ministry. Acts chapter 6, verse 6. And third, the healing of the sick and other related blessings or personal comfort and direction. Luke chapter 4, verse 40. James chapter 5, verse 14. In each case, the laying on of hands was symbolic of the Lord's hands being laid on the recipient's head. Doctrine and Covenants, section 36, verse 2. And the dispensing of divine power and direction to the recipient. Sadly, this too fell into disuse. It did. Okay, this is a sacred moment, so put your sacred clothes on when we talk about temple ordinances. See, Joseph Smith translation of Acts chapter 1, verse 3. In Acts chapter 1, we read the following. It says, to whom also he shoot himself alive after his passions by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking the things in the kingdom of God. It really said, it really should say, after his sufferings, he sh and many infallible proofs, meaning many sacred signs and tokens. Greek infallible proofs, a sure sign or token. Joseph Smith, Peter and John received the fullness of the priesthood or the law of God at the Mount of Transfiguration, and that Peter washed and anointed all of the apostles and received the endowment on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. Heber C. Kimball, Jesus inducted his apostles into these ordinances, the holy endowments. Cyril of Jerusalem's Lectures on the Ordinances, an early Christian document, circa 347 CE, describes early Christians as participating in a ritual where they were washed, anointed, and clothed with special garments. The document also speaks about prayer circles and a ritual that starts with a description of the creation of man in the Garden of Eden and then moves to a world full of temptation. The lectures concludes with the admonition, keep these traditions inviolate and see that you do not stumble. Professor John W. Welch has asserted that the text of the sermon at the temple implies teachings about, if not the performance, of the initiatory, endowment, and sealing ordinances. To support his thesis, he referred to Professor Hugh Nibley's findings which demonstrates several connections between the Savior's three-day ministry among the Nephites and the 40-day post-resurrection ministry as recorded in the so-called 40-day literature. These include the idea that the Savior blessed the apostles in the old world with an initiation or endowment generally called the mysteries, which emphasize garments, marriage, and prayer circles. Now... I don't expect you to do this, but I spent quite a bit of time reading the 40-day literature. The 40-day literature is a long list of books, and these things can be found in there. See Welch, Illuminating the Sermon at the Temple and the Sermon on the Mount, from Farms, Provo, Utah, 
1999, particularly his comparison of the teachings and presentation of the sermon in chapter 4 and his personal reflections, pages 114 through 118, for references to the endowment. References to the initiatory ordinances can be found on pages 52 and 82 and 83, and a discussion with possible implications for sealing ordinances can be found on pages 98 through 99. It is likely that the reason Luke did not record these incidents is because a he did not know he did not know about them, or b he considered them too sacred. Either way. They were discontinued some time after the death of the apostles. The crux of the soterological problem of evil, which is best stated as a logically inconsistent triad, one, God is perfectly loving and just, desiring that all his children be saved, two, salvation comes only through an individual's acceptance of Christ's salvific, 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 salvific gifts in this life and three countless numbers of God's children have died without having a chance to hear about much less accept Christ's salvific gifts so you see how these three things don't they don't go together they don't work many scriptures from the New Testament Ephesians chapter 4 verses 8 through 10 first Peter chapter 3 18 through 20 Revelation chapter 1 verses 18 through 20 and a large body of early Christian literature indicate conclusively a belief in Jesus' spirit world ministry while his body lay in the tomb. Other interesting teachings include the idea that the reason John the Baptist was beheaded was to enable him to prepare the way before the Savior there, just as he had in mortality. Additionally, it was believed one reason for the tragic loss of the apostles to martyrdom was to enable them to minister to the spirits in hell. Not only did the Apostles' Creed indicate that Jesus ministered to the spirit world, a sampling of other early Christian church leaders indicates the same. Cyril of Jerusalem, CA 315 through 386 affirms, or 86, affirms that Christ descended beneath the earth, that from thence also he might redeem the just. Of special interest to Latter-day Saints, many leaders of the early Christian church professed a belief in a descent into hell by quoting scriptures that have since been lost. The harrowing also appears as the subject of popular art and literature, including the great divine comedy. George of Frank traces Jesus' spirit world ministry from its earliest appearances in the New Testament to numerous sermons and legends in the late antiquity and to its survival well into the Middle Ages. It is also mentioned, though sparsely in the writings of various Catholic scholars as late as the 13th century. Rather than Christ's rescue of the imprisoned dead being a peculiarity in Christian thought, both its antiquity and longevity show it was the standard Christian belief. For many, many years. However, the writings of other Christian theologians convinced the Reformers to abandon this doctrine. This is really, really sad. 
the writings of Augustine of Hippo in the 4th and 5th century vigorously reject any idea of posthumous salvation, despite his being fully aware of the popularity of the doctrine for lay people as well as for prominent writers. I guess I can't wait to face Augustine in the next slide because I have a lot of questions for him. He messed up everything. <laughs> Although Thomas Aquinas believed that Christ descended to hell, he concluded that it served no salvific, sal, salvific purpose. He taught that missionary efforts had no effect in hell since repentance is no longer possible after death. And repentance is impossible because individuals' characters become set at death. The righteous will forever remain righteous, and the unrighteous will forever remain unrighteous. How sad. Protestant reformer John Calvin, for example, completely rejected any notion of Christ visiting hell to save anyone. For Calvin, the idea of a descent into hell was simply a reference to the intense suffering that Christ endured on the cross. Calvin explained it this way, much like Augustine, in a metaphor by referring to Isaiah's prophecy of Christ's sufferings in chapter 53. This, these are the people that lead the church today, John Calvin, uh, Martin Luther, etc. <clears throat> Martin Luther was just as firm in closing the door on the possibility of salvation after death. He denied the existence of a purgatory and of a limbo of the fathers in which they say that there is hope and a sure expectation of liberation. These are figments of some stupid and bungling philosopher. Luther also interprets 1 Peter metaphorically, taking the spirits in prison to mean those in mortality who do not respond to the gospel message. Oh. One might understand why religious leaders would want to squelch the notion of repentance after death. Congregants can live immorally now and convert later. <laughs> Thus, Augustine and others would declare that only this life determines our status in the next. Additionally, the Reformer's rejection of Christ's harrowing comes not from one belief, but from a package of theological commitments. It would be nearly impossible to teach the doctrine of predestination if people had an opportunity to progress after death. Furthermore, they looked on the popular belief as traditional, not scriptural. They wished to wrest out of the hands of their opponents a belief which seemed to them to give some support to the Romish theory of purgatory and to the practices which grew out of it. <sighs> These Catholic and Protestant positions only intensified the soterological problem of evil. Surely the God of mercy would, would, would offer salvation to all, according to some early apocalyptic Jewish and Christian writers. He has. Apocalyptic Jews taught that eternal damnation was a punishment reserved for fallen archangels and wicked men, while righteous Gentiles would be spared such tortures. However, this solution did not fully 
resolve the soteriological problem of evil. Righteous Gentiles, although escaping endless punishment, would not share in the exaltation of the covenant people. Oh, wow, the apostasy is bad. Some early Christians, on the other hand, provided a more thorough solution than the said Jewish predecessors. They taught that righteous individuals could receive the gospel in the next life through missionary work in the spirit world, a work initiated by Jesus' descent into hell to save those who had not known him on earth. However, some did not believe that acceptance of the gospel after death was sufficient to ensure the salvation of the deceased, but that it must be also accompanied by vicarious ordinance work, a belief implicit in their involvement in baptisms for the dead. In the temple we do things for ourselves, but basically we do things uh, for others. One of the sacred ordinances of the temple is baptism for the dead, so that uh, we perform baptisms for and in behalf of those who have lived before. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, where Paul speaks about those who baptize themselves for the dead and uh, obviously takes for granted that A, there were people who did so, and he has no complaint about it. Now with the Mormons we have it again as a practice. Professor Christer Stendhal of Harvard Divinity School became the Bishop of Stockholm in Sweden. During a visit we made there, he called a press conference, invited uh, various of his friends, and then said the following. He said, I have three rules for interfaith discussion. To wit, number one, if you're going to ask the question, what do others believe in their various faiths? Ask them, not their critics, not their enemies. Because what one religious tradition says about another is usually a breach against the commandment Thou shalt not bear false witness. Number two, if you're going to compare, don't compare your bests with their worsts, but compare bests with bests. Most people think of their own tradition as, as it is at its best, and they use caricatures of the others. And then number three, he said, leave room for holy envy. And then he said, let me give you an example of my holy envy for the Latter-day Saints. We Lutherans, when we lose our loved ones, we have funerals, we have cemeteries. But that ends our concern with those who have gone before. But the Latter-day Saints care about their forebears to the point that they want to bring the blessings of Christ's atonement to them. So they build temples, and according to Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians, they perform baptisms for the dead. And then he smiled and said, I have holy envy for that. The scholarly literature regarding baptism for the dead is too voluminous to adequately treat here but the following summary included important conclusions. Number one. 
Both the New Testament and writings of the early church fathers apparently identify baptism as an absolute requisite of any soul desiring entrance into heaven. The Gospels, the Book of Acts, and the Epistles all demonstrate that the Lord and his apostles actively extended baptism to every repentant soul and called upon every soul to repent and be baptized. Number two, although there is a general disagreement, the most common reading of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 29 among modern biblical scholars is that it in fact refers to vicarious baptism for the dead among the Corinthian saints circa AD 56 and 57. Three, early Christian writers, including Tertullian and Ambrosiator, acknowledge that 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 29 describe vicarious <clears throat> baptism for the dead. Various Christian writers of the next few centuries thereafter also recognized this as a fact, even though some of them denounced it as heresy. Number four, several New Testament passages and plethora of apocryph apocryphal and Gnostic writings support various themes related to vicarious baptism for the dead, including Christ's descent into Sheol to preach to the dead, the need for baptism for the souls in Sheol, the efficacy of proxy work for the dead, and various forms of vicarious baptism for the dead, both by the living and by angels. Five, the Marconiite, the Marconiites, the Marcionites, the Marcionites, a Christian sect that had a large following throughout much of the Roman Empire, practiced baptism for the dead from the late second or early third to the fourth century and possibly into the early 5th century A.D. Some Gnostic groups likewise practiced vicarious baptism for the dead during the same period, but of shorter duration. They believed their practice continued a rite original to Christian belief. 6. These groups are labeled heretical today. While those of the dominant sect wrote the history book, which is true of both Christian and secular history, that only means they had the strongest voice, not that they are necessarily right. The modern methodology of historical research requires us to examine the historicity of the practices without the need to accept the ideas of the dominant sect. I think it is important to note, one, despite the fact that there is a limited amount of first century documentation regarding ordinances for the dead. There is ample evidence that it occurred and that it was seen as part of the Savior and Apostles' ministry. Two, I believe the reason the ordinances for the dead became marginalized as heretical may be rooted in the fact that the Apostles were justifiably tight-lipped about the sacredness associated with temple and or the fact the only Christian groups that perpetuated the practice with those which became again justifiably regarded as apostate heretical groups like the Marsonites and the Gnostics. So, there you have the uh, uh, list of how the apostasy occurred with the ordinances. I bear testimony that the apostasy did occur and the restoration did occur as well. 
We're so blessed to have the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Joseph, I say it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.